this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure, maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. Next up, you're going to hear from Alex Bates, who is the co-founder of Mtel, which Aspen Tech acquired in 2016 for a cool $37 million. And he'll, he'll describe on the show that amounted to somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 times his top line revenue. Not a bad outcome for a company with just 10 full-time employees. To tell you how he did it, here's Alex Bates. Alex Bates, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Great to be with you. Tell me about this company, Mtel. Now, remember, I'm a technological neophyte, so you got to take it easy on me. What did you guys do in layman's terms? Yeah, well, we tackled this problem in the, in the manufacturing sector of machines breaking down and leading to secondary damage and health issues, loss of life even sometimes. And so we made a machine learning kind of AI system that could detect, could predict failures and then help these companies avoid those kind of breakdowns and that kind of thing. So, okay. So I've got a manufacturing plant and I've got a, a big machine that cranks out widgets, 500 widgets an hour, and it's got belts and all kinds of stuff that makes it all go. And I got a, a you know, a person that stamps the, you know, puts the thing, the widgets on the conveyor belts. Tell me where it goes from there. How does your software help? Yeah, exactly. So you're up and running. Um, let's just say you're, you're in oil and gas, maybe like a drilling rig. So you're operating and you can have a, a, a mud pump fail or your top drive, some critical component on the rig. Um, in extreme examples, we would have breakdowns like the Deepwater Horizon Gulf oil spill, right? So a component failure can actually have secondary breakdowns and can in some cases cause explosions. And as we all know, it can end, end very badly. How did you get into that business? Well, it's interesting. My background wasn't that kind of sphere. My co-founder, Paul, he kind of came from that world. And so he had more of the domain expertise as a mechanical engineer. I came at it more from the AI and data science machine learning perspective. And we decided let's combine our skills and see if we can attack this problem. I'm always fascinated because I've got young kids and I'm, I'm always thinking, in fact, I just had a conversation at lunch with my wife. I'm like, what do we do? You know, like, what, what do we help them? Like, what do we encourage them to do? And of course, the, the, there are so many very linear career paths, right? If you want to be a teacher or a doctor or a fireman, there's very kind of ways that you do that. But like, how do you start a technology company? In your case, you came to it 
from having some experience with AI already? It seems like you must have been on the front edge of that because it's still brand new emerging technology. Yeah, it's still pretty new. I mean, in our case, we kind of partnered up. And so we took someone who knew the industry and the customers. When you say the industry, you're talking about oil rigs? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like knew the industrial maintenance and reliability in this case. So he came from that world that our customers lived in. And I came from the technology world. So that's one recipe if you're you're building a tech company is to combine people like that. Got it. And so how did you guys get the money to build the software? Did you raise, you know, money in some way? Yeah, we bootstrapped initially off just our, our initial, some consulting and some related kind of thing. And we financed our R&D. Um, years later, we did raise a strategic corporate venture capital round from a company in Boston. What's and, corporate and, venture capital? What does that mean? So that meant we had some term sheets to raise venture capital from institutional VCs. So that's your prototypical like venture capitalists you think of. And then some corporations have a venture capital fund within them, like, of course, Google Ventures is kind of a famous example. And this company had an internal venture group where they actually invested in startups. Um, so that was kind of how that worked. What's the difference between a corporate investment, like a venture versus a pure play venture capitalist? Yeah, great question. It, I think corporate ones tend to invest if the technology could have strategic benefit to the, the parent corporation. And sometimes it's their pipeline for companies they acquire, right? So they go out, they might invest in, in a tech company that they think could be useful. And then later, sometimes they'll make an acquisition. Um, so it tends to be not just for economic return, which is how traditional VCs, but also potential benefit to the corporation from like it, a partner. So. And as part of the investment, did they get any proprietary access to the technology, some early access to the technology? Exactly. That often is negotiated. Um, sometimes they'll get some uh, sort of first most favored nation status or favored R&D focus. Um, sometimes, yeah, they'll get early versions or even customized versions of the technology as a benefit. Got it. And so how much equity did you have to give up in order to, to raise this round from the corporate venture capital list? You know, we, we actually ended up doing a sort of a series A-ish, um, a smaller round, sort of in between series and series A, Steve and series A. So we actually raised $2 million at that point in time. Got it. Got it. And, and so for folks who are trying to, you know, go down, cause a lot of people wonder, should I bootstrap it? Should I raise money? If I raise money, I have to dilute myself. How did you guys come to, cause I'm guessing 2 million at the early stage, you would have had to give up a fairly big chunk of the, the company. Did, how did you guys get comfortable with that? You know, we did, um, we did end up waiting till we had pretty good, I think terms. So we, we used some early big customer contracts to finance some of our growth. We really right. just, we did that. And then by the time we raised some external uh, cap, you know, equity-based capital, we had, I think we had some good customer traction. So we, I think we got favorable terms, but the, um, we had a better term sheet from the corporate VC. We did get term sheets from some institutionals and the, the corporate one just had better terms, better valuation, that kind of thing. Got it. And, and how do you figure out what it's worth at that stage? Um, how did you, did you have benchmarks that you're looking at or what, how did you come up with what you thought the value of the company was when you raised the money? Yeah, I think most investors start with a broadly defined uh, sort of concept of what market you're playing. in. so they might say, 
here's a traditional valuation multiple for SaaS companies or for software SaaS companies with their current revenue. But then you further zoom in and say, well, you're, you're an AI machine learning company, and we think there's some strategic value of that above and beyond is the fact that you're a SaaS company. So depending on what type of company you're building, it's always an interesting exercise. It's never, I think, completely cut and dry about there's been 10 companies and here's the, here's the multiple. It tends to be a multiple of your trailing 12-month revenue, right? So if you had $3 million in revenue, you might get a 5x multiple, like 50 mil, you know, five, like 15 million, depending on, and then sometimes you'll get 10x if you're in a really hot space, which would be like 30 million. So I think it, it depends on how they quantify that. And these multiples, by the way, I should make clear to our listeners would be a multiple on a SaaS company or software as a service company with recurring revenue, in particular in a sort of a sexy industry. I don't want anybody listening thinking they're going to get five times revenue for, you know, a car wash or something like that. Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, and it really does vary. And, you know, on some physical product companies, you might have, or service companies, it could be 1x. It, it kind of depends on what space you're in. So. Yeah, but in your space, tell me about the business model. It was a SaaS model of sorts. You charged customers on an ongoing for access to the software? Yeah, and we kind of evolved into that. Early on, um, we started in enterprise software doing traditional enterprise license sales. So they would purchase a contract and pay, you know, 18, 20% annual maintenance fee or traditional enterprise sales model. And then over the years, as SaaS became a more understood model, we switched to that kind of subscription pricing um, with recurring revenue. So that was a shift we made. Got it. And so along the way, uh, were you totally committed to building this company up? I mean, did you want to become a, a big company? Did you have a vision that you might sell at some point? Like when, when did that start to sort of trickle into your consciousness? Uh, I think we probably, we had some advisors that told us in this particular space, um, it probably would be more of an acquisition or M&A kind of liquidity event. But I don't think that we didn't really build it to sell it in, in, in that sense, because we, we built it to solve this problem and just see where it goes, see if we can solve it. Um, but I don't think it was like at the forefront of our attention that this is just built to sell. Um, theoretically, we could have taken it through an IPO and continued to grow. But um, with the way this particular industry worked, it ended up going that, that path. Got it. That's, that's helpful. And to be clear, the, 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 the product, the problem you were trying to solve is these, these machines and this technology equipment, in many cases on like an oil rig, you know, there are failure points and, and your technology would predict a failure before it happened. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Got it. And so how did you guys sell the software? Like I'm trying to think of oil rigs. Like where do you, where, where do you go? <laughs> like they're in the middle of the North Atlantic. Like who do you actually call on some company in Texas or what? How did like, who's the customer? Yeah, it's, it's probably a tough industry to break into in some ways because relatively conservative and yeah, you just fly out in a helicopter to a rig in the middle yeah. of the, the North sea. Right. So it's, so we ended up partnering with some big industrial partners. Um, this company Wonderware in Southern California, which was actually owned by this conglomerate called Invensys. And we partnered with them early on and they, they looked at what we were doing and said, you guys are filling a white space. Um, it's non-competitive. So we're going to partner with you and we'll actually help promote you to our customer base. And that helped give us some credibility and validation and also gave us access to some customers. So what were the economics on that relationship? Well, early on, it was 
really indirect. It was just exploring. And then we entered into an agreement where there was some margin sharing where they would get a cut each time we closed a sale. And then, um, so it kind of got a little bit tighter over the years. And so they were your sort of sales force, if you will? That's correct. Yeah, they became like a distribution channel. Um, I think with indirect sales early on, it sounds perfect. Like, wow, they've got thousands of salespeople. They're all selling our software. Of course, the reality check is often that they're not going to get as much margin from this partner software system than they do for their native ones. So it's not necessarily the fastest path to market, but for early on, I think it can give you a low cost distribution channel. And how did that evolve over time leading up to your acquisition? Well, I, over the time, we ended up putting a bigger priority and focus on direct sales. So we brought in uh, some key personnel that could do direct selling and um, saw that that is a better path to control our destiny and also control the commission model for the, for the salespeople. How big did you get MTEL before you decided to sell? Like in terms of revenue or number of employees, just give us a sense. Well, we actually, at the, at the time of exit, we had... Uh, 20, 20 people on staff, but it was 10 full-time employees and then 10 kind of contractor equivalents. And uh, so 20 people, um, the, the revenue numbers, uh, you know, somewhat confidential, but you can imagine probably around uh, three-ish or so, three, three million or so. And, um, but, but the, some of that gets into revenue recognition because when you close big multi-year royalty deals, like there's different rev rec rules that, Defined whether you quantify that as revenue for that year or not, so it's a complicated calculation. But right, uh, so a three-year a three-year contract, you know, the contract value three years at hundred grand a year. The contract value is three hundred grand, but you only get to recognize that when you actually uh, provide the service over the three years. That's exactly right. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay, that's helpful for sure. So, what was the trigger that made you guys decide? Okay, now's the time to sell. Well, um, we had been in discussions that we had a fork in the road to either raise like a series B round and uh, really increase our go to market. Cause we did see that some things were accelerating in the field with the adoption of, in our case, machine learning in this industrial marketplace. And we knew we needed to accelerate. And so it was either raise a bigger series B round of venture capital and use that as a growth catalyst or we did have some offers on the table for an outright acquisition. And of course, partner up with a bigger company and use that as your, as your go to market. And so, yeah, that was. Okay. So you're sort of in that um, fork in the road thinking maybe series B scale up ourselves versus sell. By the way, I've always been curious about this. What does series A and B mean? Like I've heard it described as a, you know, you've got a seed round, which is some initial kind of, initial money, maybe some friends and family or, or an angel round. And you've got a series A, which I think is like a formal round of investment, but, and then a series B, like, is there anything that, that defines A versus B when you're doing an A round and when you're doing a B, like, is there a sort of a cutoff for A and B? Is there some, like, do you file some paperwork with somebody in some administration saying this is B versus this is A? a? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and I, I couldn't tell you who coined the terms, but yeah. uh, I, my understanding and what we experienced is that at each phase, if, if, you're, if you're raising outside capital, you have to set a valuation. And wow. so the number of investors that get in at a certain stage, at a certain valuation, um, you'll nice. call it a given letter or number. And then, but there, there are these gray areas because what can happen is you closed your round, but then three months later, someone else wants in. And sometimes they'll say, okay, we're going to put you in the A, but it's really 
half A and half B now um, and they'll right. cut him in the deal. So there's some edge cases there. Got it. Okay. So it's more, it's more like everybody in A had X valuation. Everybody in B had Y valuation. Got That's it. That's right. Yeah. Alex, you're learning, you're teaching me things here. I love it. <laughs> All right. So you reach this fork in the road, maybe get acquired, maybe, maybe scale. Um, what then did you sort of put the company on the market? Did you like, did you hire an M and A guy to take it? We did. So we, we had met these people from this M and A advisory firm called Pacific Crest Securities, and they were uh, experts in M and A negotiation and, and also actually had brokered some deals in our particular sector mm. of industrial software. So they, they helped uh, broker that transaction. Got it. And where did it go from there? Well, we had a conversation with them and we just, we entered into, uh, we just started kind of collaborating and discussions well before the actual acquisition. Um, even though they understood we might go and raise a series B venture capital round, but we started discussions just in case we were going to enter, enter into a, a sale of the company. And yeah, they uh, ultimately we formalized things with paperwork. And then when we got approached, by a couple of companies, including Aspen Tech, they helped um, yeah, as really the, the, the deal negotiators, if that makes sense. So they really plugged in on that. Like, did they take the company to market? In other words, did they come up with a long list of people and like send out a teaser to get interest? Did they sort of shop you guys in a traditional way? Not really. It's interesting. I mean, we, we weren't really approaching it that way. We were our, our status quo, our, our, our plan was we were considering a Series B race. We were starting that. But they came in and said, if we get some offers on the table, let's consider it. And then suddenly we got two serious offers. And so they came in to negotiate those offers and transact for it. Ultimately, they did create a list of potential other bidders that were contacted. But what often happens is companies can't always move quick enough when they're the late one to the table, if that makes sense. But we did have a few interesting parties. Is there a, I mean, did you say to, you said it was called Pacific Crest? Pacific Crest, yeah. Okay, did you say to those guys, uh, look, we wanna raise a, you know, money for this company, a B round, um, and, and if you find a, you know, an acquisition, we'll, we'll entertain that as well? Or did you do the latter? Did you say, look, I want, we want an acquisition and, if you find investors, we'll, we'll consider those. And you mean in terms of our communication with Pacific Crest? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know, I guess what I'm go getting at is, is if, if somebody's listening to this saying, maybe, you know, I don't have to say I want to sell my company. Maybe I could just hire an M&A firm uh, to say I want to, they want, you know, the, the mandate is to raise money. And, and then if I get an acquisition offer, well, great. Um, do, do you know what I'm getting at? Could you do it in a sort of veiled way? Could you sell your company in a sort of veiled way? Yeah, I think you can. I mean, there's a lot of psychology that goes into um, selling a company the same way, with, frankly, with raising venture capital in the sense that if you cold call someone out of the blue and say, hey, you know, we're, we're desperate to sell, you kind of project a certain picture about yourself. But if it's a warm intro or they hear about you through their network of friends and they, or they hear, hey, I, I heard that someone's looking at this company. We don't, they don't want to miss out on the deal. And so that psychology can certainly, uh, can certainly help. And, but some of that's hard to sort of, some of that has to be organic because if you happen to get a referral from a trusted resource, those people don't refer just to anyone. But if you do have a good network of contacts and someone believes in what you're doing, they probably will be referring you. But the best way is to, for someone to sort of hear 
um, indirectly about what you're doing probably as opposed to you kind of cold calling them. Got it. And so you had a couple of companies mm-hmm. sort of uh, approach you or give Pacific Crest a, 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 an offer of some sort? Did you get a letter of intent or what, what was the, what was the, what, what is it that, that you got from them? Yeah, well, ultimately, we did have uh, multiple parties interested. And that once a, a timeline was established with an LOI, it turned out that, um, that only one company could kind of move, move fast enough. But others were interested and wanted us to delay the process. And there's always some interesting negotiations that happen on that because um, it, it, that gets into the whole art of M&A, which that's why we hired Pacific Crest, was I, I'm by no means an expert on that. But um, but we, we did have interest from multiple parties, but one was able to move fast enough. Great. And so LOI, just for those following along, letter of intent, um, and you were trying to get, you know, them to delay a little bit so that you could get the other interested parties to pull in an LOI to weather, to create some. And so I'm assuming ultimately it was acquired by Aspen tech. Aspen tech was like, Hey Alex, I mean, here's the offer. Like we're not waiting around for you to get a bunch of other offers sort of engage or we're out of here. It was that, is that fair to say how their, their posture was? Yeah, typically LOIs have a window of time for you to execute. And, uh, you know, you might be able to delay weeks. You can't typically delay months. So, um, yeah, so there's some limited flexibility for shopping around at that point. Yeah, because they're trying to create uh, a proprietary deal and some leverage for themselves, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. Got it. Did they move quickly to create an LOI? Like, was part, was the speed with which they presented an LOI to you part of their negotiation strategy? Well, I think it was after probably three months after initial discussions that we got to the LOI stage. But the discussions were weren't really. Um, it was just we had sort of met them and been at some trade shows and customer conferences, and but I'd say sort of some discussions started three months prior to the LOI. Then the LOI came, and then. No, it was about three months of due diligence after that. When did the the price start to come up? I mean, did they put a price to you? Did they say, hey, Alex, what do you want for your company? Like, how, how did the, the number come up? Yeah, well, our, so uh, in their negotiation with uh, Pacific Crest, kind of intermediating the, that negotiation, uh, yeah, there was a little bit of back and forth on that. Um, I think, again, there's a whole dynamic of sort of whisper numbers and things and how they, they make those uh, those numbers kind of hone in on, on one that works. So that was kind of one of the things that they, they helped us with. So when you say, what did you say? Whisper tech? No, whisper. Uh, whisper number. Whisper number. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? I've never heard that well, term. Before. I think sometimes, uh, and again, this is out of my, this is why we kind of brought in the professionals on yeah. the deal, part of the deal. But I think that there's techniques for sort of um, exchanging information before the big meeting so that people aren't so far apart. And uh, I, I wasn't even necessarily privy to all those techniques, but I think that was one thing that might have happened behind the scenes. Got it. Got it. It reminds me of like grade nine, when you like a girl, you don't actually say you like the girl, you tell her best friend that you like her. <laughs> and, and you're trying to get a bit of a feel for whether that's going to go down well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm revealing my entire uh, dating strategy from four years ago. Um, Okay, so you come together with Aspen Tech, the LOI. Was there a lot of back and forth over the LOI? How did you guys deal with that? Yeah, and of course, you know, we, we signed an NDA, but what I can tell you about the process was there was a little bit of back and forth, and 
one of the reasons we were so happy to bring in Pacific Crest was that when you're negotiating for yourself, this is like your, your child and you're negotiating for their future and you're way too emotionally invested to sort of have this kind of um, conversations and, and essentially a negotiation. Um, you don't want to be overly emotionally invested in, at certain points where you might make irrational sort of decisions. And so we're super happy they came in. There was some back and forth negotiation on the, the deal and the aspects of it and things like relocation and, and uh, earnout and IP indemnification and, and all the sort of things that come up in an LOI and, and in an acquisition package. And, and they, they, being the experts, were able to negotiate, I think, very well for us. Describe for people what IP indemnification means. Yeah, that's an interesting one. It stands for intellectual property and indemnification means you who owns the risk and liability. So let's say down the road, a lawsuit comes or some other kind of thing related to IP. And indemnification means you essentially are, are free from risk or liability. And um, yeah, so that gets into who bears the, the, the core risk for potential litigation in, in that, whether it's the party selling their company or the party buying it, right? It's kind of negotiating that split of, of, of percent. Got it. I understand your negotiations were, were obviously confidential. If you had an, uh, kind of a, a buddy, an EO friend or a friend that, that you've known for a while who has a company and they're just about to sign a letter of intent to be acquired, what advice would you give that entrepreneur before she signs the LOI? One would probably be to get a, some, some expert advisor, formal or informal, that's worked with a lot of these deals because there's all kinds of questions that come up, like on the IP indemnification one, the key one is the percent, right? Like, is it 90, 10, 50, 50? Percent of what? And, and that gets into the percent of indemnification, meaning if there was future litigation, would it come out of your acquisition price or would it, you know, who would pay those, those legal bills in that particular case? I see. And looking at other aspects of the deal, like whether you relocate, if there's an earnout, those are other key deal points. And uh, yeah, just having a professional who's done hundreds or thousands of these deals will help. They'll, they'll know how much leverage you have and how much they can kind of push back on those things. How did you feel about agreeing to an earnout? Well, ultimately, we did it in all cash deals. So, I mean, uh, there was a separate kind of, there were some retention things added for specific key personnel. But um, yeah, so we were happy that, you know, that the negotiation happened in terms of, in terms of a cash deal. So what was the final selling price? Uh, it was 37 million. And it's a huge number. I mean, people are going to hear that uh, 10 full-time employees, 10 part-time contractors, uh, just an enormous number. Um, congratulations. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, we were, we, we felt very fortunate. We'd even in our, in our fundraise, we'd still retain 95% of the equity in the company. So I think at the time of the acquisition, we were happy with kind of returning to the shareholders and employees a good, a good package for what they had done. How did, how did the investor, uh, that strategic venture capitalist, uh, corporate venture capitalists uh, play out in the, the, the LOI stage? I mean, were they instrumental in, in helping you think through what the company was worth, how to negotiate? Was it quiet in the corner? And how did they, how were they involved? That's an intriguing question because part of that 
investment because they were a corporate VC was that they would recuse themselves from M&A negotiations because you could think of it as a conflict of interest if they might want to acquire the company and someone else comes in to acquire it. So they had actually been left out essentially of the negotiation phase of that. When we got to a certain point in the acquisition, of course, we did let them know because they had a seat on the board of directors that this offer was coming through. And ultimately, um, I mean, they, they doubled their money from their investment and that was only over a course of uh, a short period. So I think they were, they were happy with the outcome uh, financially and, and at the time they weren't in a position to make a counteroffer. And so it, you know, all parties were pleased with the, the outcome. How would you describe due diligence? Intense. Uh, it was, I mean, this was a company that had acquired, uh, I think over 30 companies over the last, you know, over decades, but they were consummate professionals, but they were extremely thorough because the job of the due diligence committee is to make sure absolutely no stone is, is not turned over and checked. And so they had an extraordinarily thorough process all the way up to even the last day of due diligence started at 6 a.m. Oh my gosh. And uh, finished at 6 p.m. So it was, what was... What were they doing at 6 a.m. in the morning? Well, by the way, my, my job as chief technology officer was to um, go get the bagels and breakfast sandwiches that morning. So <laughs> Perfect. I, I was there at 6 a.m. sharp with our breakfast. And we, on that day, they wanted to run a battery of tests with our software um, to make sure everything checked out. And so it was, it was actually partly a technical evaluation and then some final paperwork checks and that kind of thing. How nervous are you when, when they're doing their technology? Oh man, um, extremely. I mean, the whole process was, was mind wracking. I mean, we used to joke that they would, when they're, when they're dealing with due diligence, the last thing on their mind was our stress levels. We always kind of would joke about that. Like that was not on the priority list. And so, that held true the last day. I mean, their job is to be extraordinarily thorough, but uh, yeah, every little test they ran, we're sitting there and every question they asked and, and occasionally they'd ask us to leave the room and it was everything. Of course, you're running all kinds of scenarios in your head. Why are they asking this question? What's going on? Uh, so, you know, we got to the finish line and everyone took a big sigh of relief. Is there any sort of resentment that builds up? I mean, I can look at your visual, you know, you're a relatively young guy, you're getting this massive check. They're in the bowels of this big technology company slaving away. Like, was there, did you ever get a sense that there's a little bit of resentment? Like, they're going to cut this massive check to you and you're going to ride off into the sunset? Oh, I see. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, they, they did some retention packages to ensure, again, that some key personnel would, would stick around. And partly because there wasn't an earnout, you know, and, but on top of that, that's always a potential dynamic. And, and I've heard of other acquisitions where things didn't go the way they planned or the company felt they overpaid. In our case, I think we were pretty happy on both sides with the outcome. I mean, Aspen Tech, their market cap doubled in the two years following the acquisition from about 4 billion to 8 billion. And then we saw, for example, Barron's uh, called them one of the top three AI investments. And so ultimately, I felt like they were um, left in a good position, and, and we were all extremely motivated to, to see that be, uh, be a good outcome for them. Did you buy yourself a trophy when this whole thing closed? Was there any sort of physical manifestation of, of the achievement? 
Well, I did. I mean, I, I moved into a new house, um, got got the new Tesla, um, actually got my mom a Tesla. So that oh, was, that's awesome. That's probably my favorite one. That's great. And did, what, what was her reaction to uh, receiving the car from you? Uh, pretty, it, well, I actually flew up to Portland. She was up in Portland, Oregon. And so it was a surprise kind of delivery. And I worked it out with Tesla ahead of time. So we had someone go knock on her door. She didn't even know I was in town visiting. And so I think she was pretty shocked to see both me and the Tesla. Um, and so it, it was a great, great moment. And what did you say? I just kind of jumped out and she, her jaw just dropped. I mean, she was just in shock and gave her a big hug and, and uh, just, you know, said congratulations. And, and uh, yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun. You did good, mom. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate you sharing uh, the story with us, Alex. What, um, what are you up to now? I, I uh, understand there's a book. Maybe tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So I had some extra time. I, as, I mean, for me, one of my passions is artificial intelligence. So I, I formed this network to, to talk to other people in the field about once a month about the path to the future and things like that. And then I put together, I wrote this book about how humans and AI can work together, and in particular, how AI can actually augment humans and improve our lives and make us more intelligent, as opposed to the, the kind of what we usually hear about, I think, in the media is the risks of things like job loss and Terminator. And I, I saw a very different aspect about it being an empowering thing. So that was why I, I focused on that. Cool. And the, the book is called Augmented Mind. AI, humans, and the superhuman revolution. I understand you can get it anywhere books are sold. I guess Amazon's probably the fastest and easiest way, but anywhere you, you buy your books. Um, Alex, is there anywhere that people, if they wanted to reach out and, and connect with you, uh, can you point them towards a social media channel? Or uh, uh, like what's the best way if people want to follow up with you? Uh, or maybe if that's even on the, on the consideration, what's the best way? Yeah, well, I have a personal website, which is alexbates.ai. So that's, and that'll link to my various different um, social medias and things like that. Um, I also have my investment firm, which is called Neocortex Ventures. So neocortexventures.com. Cool name. So either one of, yeah, thank you. Uh, so those are two different sites for that. Awesome. Alex Bates, thanks for joining us. So great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L 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 Thanks for listening.